Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. A very, very warm welcome to you all to the LSE for this event, which is both here in the room, wonderful to see so many people, but also online. My name is Nicola Lacey, I'm School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy here at the LSE and I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Dr Richard Reeves this evening and Dr Abigail McKnight to both our online audience and our audience here this evening. Richard Reeves is a Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, a very distinguished organisation where he's a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies where he holds the John and C. Nancy D. Whitehead Chair which is also the director of the Future of the Middle Class initiative, and his research focuses on the middle class, inequality, and social policy. And as many of you will know, he's also had a very distinguished policy development and advisory role uh, in this country before his move to the United States. My dear colleague Abigail is director of the Center for Analysis of Social Exclusion at LSE. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, and her research interests include inequality, poverty, wealth, social mobility, higher education and employment policy. We're going to hear first from Richard, who's going to be discussing some of the key themes from his recently published book, Hugh. I hope many of you have it. If you don't yet have it, one of the few unfortunate people who doesn't, haven't yet read or had a chance to read the book. Uh, there is a nice supply of the book just outside the lecture theatre and Richard's very kindly going to stay on stage to sign copies of the book for 10 minutes or so after the end of the lecture. So we do encourage you to come back and get your book signed if you would like to do that. So the book, as you know, is called Of Boys and Men, Why Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What We Can Do About It. And then Abigail, when Richard has given us his summary and analysis, will do a commentary. For those of you bold souls who use Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is at LSEIII. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. This is obviously drafted by a lawyer, wasn't it? And I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I didn't draft this, I assure you. You're all going to have a chance, of course, both online and in the auditorium, to put your questions to uh, Richard and Abigail. And I'd like to just ask you one thing, when you, whether online or in the hall, if you would be kind enough to just state your name and your institutional affiliation so that we know who we've got here, and particularly if you're an LSE student or alumni, uh, that would be great to hear. So I'm now absolutely delighted to hand over to Richard and to welcome him again and thank him so much for his time. Great. Thank you, Nicola, and thank you, Abigail, for agreeing to join me in this discussion. Thank you to all of you for coming and for those who are watching online. So I'm going to be talking, as Nicholas said, about my book, Of Boys and Men, where I outline some of the issues that I think many boys and men are facing in modern societies. Obviously, that's going to require a little bit of unpacking, so I'm going to be sharing some data. But my basic argument is going to be that there are some real problems facing many boys and men, 
and that it is incumbent on those who work on issues of equality, inequality, social mobility, poverty, etc., to examine those issues and to some extent to address them through policy, and that a failure to do so creates a vacuum in our culture and in our politics, and that is a vacuum that will be exploited by irresponsible agents of one form or another. So for those who wanted to just get the absolute top line, that was basically it. So uh, the trained as a journalist wanted to just get the key points down. I want to thank, first of all, thank you to the Institute for International Inequalities for hosting this and to Nicola and Abigail again. I also want to thank uh, one person in particular in the audience, Ariel Galrod Shiro is in the audience. Could you put your hand up, please, Ariel? Who is a former research assistant and senior research assistant at the Brookings Institution, who is part of our team in the Centre on Children and Families, and played some role uh, in helping to ensure that this book was at least factually accurate. And so, what that means is that if there are, of course, any mistakes in it, as the author, I'm going to entirely blame Ariel. <laughs> so any issues, take them up with him afterwards. But thanks, Ariel. Great to see you here. He is, of course, now a graduate student here. So what I'm going to do is share data, some of it's going to be US-based, some of it's going to be OECD, and there are other people in the audience who will be better placed than I am to say how far these apply in the UK or other countries. But I do think I have to start with a little bit of justification. It's not the first time that someone's decided to write a book about boys and men. This is Hannah Rosen's book from 10 years ago, The End of Men, based on an Atlantic article of the same name. This is from a more conservative perspective, Kay Heimowitz's book, Zimbardo had a book about men. Andrew Yarrow had a book from the Brookings Institution Press, which is where I published a few years ago, also on what's happening to men. Warren Farrell and John Gray, The Boy Crisis, a few years ago. Uh, over here, uh, there's been a few too. This is Melvin Connor's book, actually, on women after all, which gets into some of the biological differences between men and women and how women are essentially superior. Transforming Men by Jeff Dench from the late 90s, a British sociologist who basically said, if women get economic independence, that will turn out badly for men. And then this one, which I've just started reading, which is actually fictional, uh, a novel about a virus which wipes out 90% of the world's men and the social and economic consequences of what that world would look like. And I've got halfway through, and it's a very, very interesting read, obviously partly inspired by COVID. So why another one, you may well ask? Why put another book out there? Well, first of all, because I have three sons. And I think it's important to be honest about that because most scholarship is at least partly autobiographical. Like why are you interested in that subject? Why are you writing about that subject? And I think it's important to be honest about that. And so listening to the stories that my sons would tell about, I raised three boys all into their 20s. My middle son, Bryce, uh, is also here in the audience and is a student at Cardiff University. So he's come over to this institution to hear me speak. In both the UK and the US have raised them. And so just the experience that they've had through educational institutions uh, has been interesting to me. But then in my day job as a Brookings scholar, working on issues around inequality, poverty, education, etc., I just kept stumbling across data points about some of the ways in which many men and boys are actually struggling. And I would show it to colleagues and say, did you know this? And sometimes they kind of know it, kind of not know it. But it didn't feel to me as if those data points were getting enough attention, or to put it slightly differently, perhaps they weren't getting the right kind of attention. Very often they were being picked up by those who you might argue on the alt-right, a reactionary form of politics in some way, to argue that society doesn't care about boys and men. Because here's the evidence, but no one's talking about it. So listen to me. So 
here are my three sons. I've just said it's autobiographical. And Bryce, you can thank me for the fact that I didn't use a current photograph, so it'll be hard for people to identify you. This is the last time I was taller than all three of them, so I like this photo. You know, there's toxic masculinity for you. Obsessed with how tall we are. But I'm going to start with some quite stark statistics about what I describe as the male noise. And the first is the stark difference in suicide rates between men and women. There are different kinds of mental health crises affecting men and women, especially young men and women right now. But suicide is one where you see, in the US, a four times higher suicide rate among men than among women. What this chart shows at the top is the male suicide rate in 2019 is the blue dot, and 2020, 2021, we just updated this, is the orange, and it shows you the change over time for those different age groups. And then at the bottom, you can see the same data, but for women. Overall, about a fourfold difference. Between 2020 and 2021, there was a marked increase in male suicide. There was no increase in female suicide. And the biggest increase of all was in young male suicide, which rose by 8% just between 2020 and 2021. As I said, there are different mental health problems that are affecting many, many uh, girls and young women. And it's an opportunity for me to make a point you're going to hear a lot from me tonight, which is the need to think two thoughts at once. It is not only possible but necessary to recognize that there are many issues, especially in much of the world, where it's absolutely true that the cause of gender equality is synonymous with the cause of women and girls. And even in advanced economies, many areas where we still need to do much more for women and girls. But it is also true that in many countries there are some issues that are disproportionately affecting boys and men. And we have to be able to say both those things. We shouldn't have to choose between only caring about one or the other. It's rather like saying to a parent who has a son and a daughter, which one are you going to care about? And it's a fatal mistake, in my view, to think that it's zero sum. Um, so those are the US numbers. These are the OECD numbers. Um, so you can see the OECD in the middle. The levels of suicide are very different across OECD countries, but the ratio remains pretty similar. The UK is over there on the left, mercifully a little bit lower rate um, than some other countries, but about the same gap between three and four times. And what that means, by the way, is that suicide remains the biggest killer of British men under the age of 45. And again, I think this is data that we need to take seriously when we think, for example, about the case for a men's health strategy. That's something that people have argued for in the UK Parliament for a long time. It's never gotten any traction at all. The very idea of a men's health strategy strikes some people as borderline treachery, but I now think the case for it is pretty unanswerable if we're going to focus on some of these issues. I'm going to talk about education now. I'm going to spend a bit more time on this, perhaps, than some of the other issues given the audience. And again, some of this is US data. This is uh, US data for four-year college degree attainment. And the left-hand scale here is showing you the number of women for every 100 men getting a four-year degree, which is bachelor's, and then it also shows you in blue master's or other postgraduate degrees. And it starts in 71-72 because actually we have good data from 71-72 going forward, but that's also, in the US context, a very important year because 1972 is when Title IX was passed, which was major US legislation to promote women and girls in education and to try and get more gender equality in the education system. It was very successful, and you can see that there was a very rapid catch-up and then an overtaking. And so now there's actually a slightly bigger gender gap in terms of degree attainment than there was in 1972 when Title IX was passed. It's just the other way around. So in 72, men about 13 percentage points more likely to get a degree. Today, women about 15 percentage points more likely to get a degree. So we have Title IX level inequality in higher education. It's just reversed. And no one saw that coming. No one anticipated that, and so I still think we're trying to update our worldview to catch up with those facts. 
Similar story against OECD, across OECD countries. This is a different measure. This is the share of uh, young adults aged 25 to 34 with tertiary education. And you can see that the pattern is essentially the same pretty much everywhere. The OECD average is about 40, is 41% for men and 54% for women. So almost exactly the same gap as you see in the US, between a 13 and a 14 percentage point gap in tertiary attainment for between women and men. This shows you the gender gap in college enrollment uh, in the UK. It only goes up to 17, 18, but you can see there's about a 12, 13 percentage point gap in the UK in enrollment. That's not completion, but it's enrollment. And so essentially you're seeing a sort of same pattern roughly everywhere. If you break, and this is not my work, this is from the Higher Education Policy Institute, this is a report from Nick Hillman, uh, what this is showing you is enrollment rates by free school meal, non-free school meal, and by gender, and then it also showing you by quintile. So the lines are showing you by income quintile what the enrollment rates are, and then the bars are showing you what the enrollment rates are for those different groups. And without digging into their chart in great detail, it makes a point that I make in the book and won't spend very much time on here, which is the need to think about this intersectionally and think about the ways in which class and race and gender are interacting in different ways and in different places. And I will say that one of the big differences between the US and the UK is that in the US, it's black boys and men who you will find who are most likely to be at the bottom of most of the educational uh, outcomes we're worried about. As you can see, that's not true. Uh, in the same way in the UK, and it's actually white men and white women on free school meals who are least likely to enroll in college in the UK. There's all kinds of complicated reasons for that, but other people will be better placed than me to talk about, but it's partly about the difference in the quality of the education system, uh, a secondary education system in different parts of the country. Back to US data, we can predict what's going to happen at college by what happens at high school. So in the US, the high school system is running for those last four years of secondary education, and the main measure of success in high school is your grade point average, your GPA. So what this chart does is it takes your high school GPA and then ranks it by decile from the lowest GPA on the left to the highest GPA on the right. So what you're seeing on the right is that of those 10% with the highest GPAs coming out of US high schools, two-thirds are girls. And of those with the lowest GPA, two-thirds are boys with a roughly linear relationship in between. GPA is a very good measure of overall success. It's also a very good predictor of going to college. And in the US right now, there's a big move to go test optional in college admissions, i.e. take away things like the SAT and ACT, which are standardized tests where there isn't a gender gap, really, anymore, and instead move towards more of a GPA-based approach. There's a good reason to do that, by the way, because GPA is a better predictor of college completion than those standardized tests. However, it is a result of going to test optional, that you're going to put more weight on GPA. And a very good study shows the main demographic change is it increases the share of female enrollment by four percentage points by going test optional. When you look at this chart, that's blindingly obvious that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's what's happening. Now, again, I've just pulled some stuff from a very new OECD report because I was at the OECD a couple of days ago. And so I was looking at some of their PISA reports. This is the international test. Um, that you can see a gap here in math. Now what this is showing you is that boys are still ahead of girls in math, and if you look at the left-hand axis, you can see that there's a kind of more than a 10-point gap in a few places, but not in many. Dark bar means statistically significant. This is reading with a very different left-hand axis. So this left-hand axis goes to 30, this left-hand axis goes to 70. You all know by now to look for the left-hand axis, right? 
that's where a lot of our work is done in terms of like where you put the left-hand axis. So this just shows you that in every OECD country, there's a massive gap in, in reading in favor of girls. They're all statistically significant in every country. There's no country where it goes the other way. Uh, the OECD report in question didn't actually get into this at all. Uh, it only focused on the math gap. Why? Why are adolescent girls doing so much better than adolescent boys across the country? Well, one thought I have is that it's because boys' brains develop a little bit later than girls' brains. And what this chart shows you is two things. Girls on the left, boys on the right, age across the bottom axis. And this is Larry Steinberg and his colleagues' work. And what this is measuring is an average, average line of impulse control and sensation seeking. So sensation seeking, which is the orange line, is basically like the, it's like the accelerator or gas in the US. Accelerator in a car, it's like, that's a great idea, let's try that. That would be fun, that's a good drug. Or, if you're a guy, the most scary thing to hear out of the mouth of any of your kids, especially because your son, is here, hold my drink and watch this. <laughs> so there's this kind of sensation-seeking, risk-taking thing, and that's the orange. But then, there's the impulse control, which is the blue line, which is the break. It's a no, 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 that's a really bad idea. Don't do that. No, 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 don't do that. Let's stay in, let's do our chemistry homework. Right? Let's not just plan ahead. Let's think about the implications, etc. Now, adolescence is a period where, as you can see, we're a hot mess. Where we get more impulse control, not quite enough, and then we catch up. There's also a massive gender gap, and especially in adolescence. The biggest gender gap appears to be about the age of 15, 16. Which turns out to be quite an important period for your educational trajectory. So, in that sense, just neurologically, there's a difference between boys and girls, which we couldn't see under conditions of sexism, because we didn't allow girls to flourish and move on educationally. But now that we are, I think you can see some of those advantages showing through. Another problem is not very many men in our schools. This is US data again, showing the share of men at these different levels of education. It's a little bit different in the UK. In the UK, 15% of primary school teachers are male. But that means because of distribution, a third of our primary schools have no men in them. And in both the US and the UK, only two or three percent of our early years educators are men. In the US now, there are at least twice as many women as a share of the profession flying US military planes as there are men teaching kindergarten. I think from a social welfare perspective, actually having more men in our classrooms is even more important than having more women flying our military planes. To be clear, I'm in favor of having women flying military planes. To be even clearer, I don't really care as long as they can shoot down the other planes when it comes to it, and if that's going to be more women on one way, fine. But I will point out that the US military is spending a lot of money to redesign its aircraft to make sure it's more inclusive, because the ejector seats and all of that didn't fit. Great. I don't see very much effort yet to get more men into our classrooms. Um, and in Northern Ireland, this is a BBC report, and I'm going to read it out, but it was basically just talking about the drop in the shore of men. The reason I'm doing this is because, if you look like four paragraphs down, after a very, very intensive search, the department concluded that there are no male nursery teachers anywhere in Northern Ireland. Not one in the whole of Northern Ireland. Is that a problem? Well, I think it is a problem because of the evidence that actually, A, kids believe their eyes, not their ears. As the women's movement taught us, you have to see it to be it. And because of the evidence that, particularly in subjects like English, having a male teacher can help boys. Just as it looked like having a female teacher seemed to help girls in STEM subjects, 
having a male English teacher seems to help, boys particularly, but English is the subject that men are least likely to teach of all the subjects. So there's a double problem there. So we've got these huge gaps in education. And I'd like to quote this. This is one of the quotes that led me down the journey towards writing the book. There is now a wide consensus that gender inequality is unfair and lead to waste of human potential. That remains true in the disadvantage of boys as well as girls. This was in reference to some uh, educational inequality, and I don't know if the person in question remembers saying this. <laughs> I agreed with him then, and I agree with him now. So thank you for saying this, because I completely agree it was after the thing the World Bank brought out some, some of their things. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about employment, so I'll talk about education, and I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, and apologies if I have to skip a couple of charts, but... It's obviously true that there's still a gender pay gap, and I'll get to that in a moment, but it's also true that there's been a very significant change in the economic relationships between men and women in the economy, as there should have been, and as we need to continue to push for, partly because of the change in education. The result of that is to change the nature of the female and male income distributions. So this is the earnings distribution, I should say, the kernel density distribution of the female and male uh, earnings distributions in 1979, just showing you what proportion are falling under different levels of the curve. And at that point, only 13% of women earned more than the median man, which is the bit, can't, can you see that? Yeah, it's the bit that was blocked off there, the median man. And today, it's 40%. So in the essay, this is full-time adult workers, which is the same basis that we mentioned the gender pay gap on. So 40% not 50%. And as you can see, the distributions are not exactly the same. But I think you can also agree that it's a lot different. This is, in my view, huge, and to the extent that we've seen this in many advanced economies, it represents the greatest economic liberation in global history. The women's movement set out to try and secure more economic independence for women, and to a very significant degree in advanced economies that has been achieved, not completely to stress, but it is a very different world to the world even of my parents. So it's a breathtakingly quick change. That has all kinds of implications for the way we think about our roles, which I'll get to in a moment. But as you can also see, the density distribution has been pushed to the right. It's got squashed and pushed to the right. What does that mean? Massive wage inequality. And what this just shows you is the wage trends from a zero basis for the 80th percentile of women, median, 20th, and the same for men. And it just shows you that women's wages have obviously risen a lot faster from a lower base. Male wages have been stagnant and median at the bottom, at least in the US. But for both of them, huge increase in wage inequality. We also have to do an intersectional analysis, especially in the US. So what this shows you is 79 and 2020 average uh, median weekly earnings. White men at the top, way ahead of everybody else and with a decent gain. White women, now second place, having had a very, very rapid increase in, in earnings, uh, blowing right past black men who've seen a very small increase, black women have seen a decent increase, and now earn about 95 cents on the dollar for black men. White women now earn about a dollar for every 84 cents that black men earn. So again, it's incredibly important when we talk about these issues to think about race and class as well as gender. Because white women now earn a lot more than both black men and black women in the US. So just to compare to white men, to compare everybody to white men, can disguise the complexity of the story. One of the other things that's happened in the labor market is we've seen an increase in the share of women in STEM occupations. You all know what STEM stands for, I assume, all right? Not if you know what STEM stands for. Didn't used to be STEM. Judith Ramillay at the National Science Federation, she got the job of promoting SMET. <laughs> and she said, what the hell is SMET? And they explained to her, it's science. 
math, engineering, and technology. She said, SMET. I'm not selling SMET. Uh, let's make it STEM. First day on the job, she changed it to STEM. The rest is history. There was a congressional caucus within a year, and so on. And a big push to get more women into STEM. And so this is the kind of share of workers in occupation where we've seen this really pretty significant increase. Up to about 27% in 2019 of STEM workers are now female, rising. There are various areas where actually it hasn't been as good as in others. So tech, for example, is a big disappointment. But in some of the others, we've seen a decent rise. But then I compare that to what I call heel occupations, health, education, administration, and literacy. The opposite, if you like, of STEM. And there we've seen fewer men. So we're we've desegregated the labor market in one direction, and we are segregating it in the other direction. This shows you the share of men in some of these heel jobs. Again, in the US, 1980 all the way through to 2020, the top line is psychologists, the middle two lines are social workers and elementary and middle school workers, and the bottom line is nurses. We've halved the share of men in those top three professions since 1980. You can see that psychology used to be actually pretty balanced. Psychology has become a female profession, and it's happened since I joined the labor market, virtually. I mean, it's incredibly how fast that's happened. Among psychologists under the age of 30 in the US, only 5% are male. In the UK, only one in nine psychology students are male. Psychology has become a women's profession. It didn't used to be a women's profession. Does that matter? Well, it matters if you think that mental health crisis is real. It matters if you think that sometimes men are going to want a male therapist, just as female want a female therapist. I think it matters. But there's no policy right now to address these declines. Now, one of the arguments I get a lot, especially from more conservative inclined critics, is yeah, but you know, men just aren't into those sorts of professions. You know, men are into things. Women are into people, the people-things dimension, right? That's why men are going to be engineers and women are going to be nurses. Well, my view on this is it is true that across the whole population, that on average, Women are a bit more into people type activities and men are a bit more into things type activities, that's true. But the distributions overlap hugely. And I've come to believe that one of the biggest problems with public policy debates is the unwillingness or inability to imagine an overlapping distribution. Right? Everything has to either be exactly the same or completely different. And usually the distributions overlap. And the question is, how much do they overlap? And do we care anyway? And when it comes to people things, I found this study by Rong Su and James Rounds where they took the personality profiles of men and women across the US on the people things dimension, and then they estimated what share of men and women we'd see in these different professions if they were choosing under conditions that allow them to choose quotes freely. And what this basically finds is they show what the actual share is on the blue and then what the predicted would be from those psychological profiles in the orange. You can see that some professions are actually pretty close to what you predict. Right? So 40% of mathematicians are female. It's a share female here. And they would predict that based on the interests of men and women. 30% right? of engineers would be women, compared to at the time it was 10% are actually women. And then medical services is mostly nurses. They would say actually it would be about 60% of nurses would be, would be female. And you can see what it currently is. So the point of this chart is it shows you that it won't be 50% in everything if there are any differences between us that aren't just socialized. But it'll be a lot more than 5%. It'll be a lot more than 3%. So the problem with conservatives on this is that they overweight the evidence for differences between men and women to explain vast inequalities in the same way they explained the fact that there are only 5% of MPs were women in 1979. 
when Mrs. Thatcher became Prime Minister. To say, well, that's not really a women's thing, is it? Mrs. Thatcher proved them wrong. And now a third of MPs are women. And there's only one party in the UK that's majority male, the Conservative Party. So they were wrong then. So just don't overweight the difference, would be my point. And then last thing here, this is mostly US data. And I, I'm not in touch with the UK data in the same way that I should be. So I'd be interested to see if there are differences. I know there are differences, but the direction will be interesting. So this just shows you how in the US, now 30% of women in the US earn more than their partner. That's obviously a dramatic increase on 1970 where I start the chart. This shows you more educated than their partner. This shows you the share of households where a woman is the primary or sole breadwinner, which has doubled in the last few decades, is now 40%. And this shows you the share of women with children under six who are in the labor market, used to a minority, now it's a majority. And so the economics of family life and the economic relations between men and women have been utterly transformed in the last 50 years. And that's a very, very good thing. It was the necessary consequence of taking away many of the barriers that women have faced. And again, not to say, and I'll get to this in a moment, that job done, mission accomplished. Because there's still a gender pay gap. There's still an underrepresentation of women in many areas of life, especially at the top of society. I happen to ha be married to someone that's trying to raise money right now from the US venture capital industry. So I know that only 3% of US VC money goes to female founders. I'm reminded of that on an almost daily basis. <laughs> only 3%. Only one in four members of Congress are women in the US. We still only have 44 women running Fortune 500 companies, etc. Huge amount more. And I mentioned there are still issues in STEM. But the world has changed very significantly in ways that are challenging for many men, especially men with less economic power. There's still a gender pay gap. In my view, the gender pay gap is now the result of occupational segregation and women's professions getting paid less on average, but mostly parenting. The labor market has not changed to recognize the fact that we live now in this world rather than the world we had before, where both parents are likely to work. This shows you, this is Cleven's Danish data, but it's the same in the US. This shows you what happens to men who have a kid versus men who don't have a kid. Those are those two lines. You're right, there's nothing to see there. This is women who have a kid, and women who don't have a kid. Now, interestingly, there's now also some very uh, evidence of people like Corinne Lowe and others in the US showing this is true of same-sex couples as well. Mostly women, because women in same-sex couples are much more likely to have kids than men in same-sex couples, but you see a similar earnings hit for the woman who's the birth mother. One of the differences is that in a same-sex couple, they can very often take it in turns to be the birth mother, so it kind of evens out over the course of the child-rearing years, but in a heterosexual couple, the birth mother is by definition the woman, and so she's going to pay this earnings penalty, and the more children she has, the higher the earnings penalty is. So the labor market is still extracting a very high price for raising children, and that still falls disproportionately on women. What should we do? Okay, and I'm right on time, I think. I've got a couple minutes left. All right, these are pretty US-focused, but not all of them. I think we should start boys in school a year later. Their brains develop about a year later, especially in adolescence, so let's get ahead of that. And just redshirt them, is the US phrase for it. Or at least give parents more choice about that. I think that would level the playing field in our schools to some extent and help to close some of the gaps we've talked about. More technical high schools in the US. The US underinvests very badly in vocational training. Maybe a little bit of truth to that here too is that there's a fear about tracking, class tracking especially, um, but there are many boys who are not being served by the current system. More apprenticeships in the US. This does apply here too. A mass recruitment drive of male teachers, especially in English. 
My own son is an early years educator, one of that 2 to 3%. You have to go against a lot of the grain. There's a lot of stigma that you face for doing it. I think there's huge upside benefits. I think we should have scholarships and subsidies to get more men into education, especially in those subjects where they can do the most good. Male-only scholarships for teachers. Just as we quite rightly have female-only scholarships for STEM. If we have an area of, uh, of our economy or our society where there's a huge underrepresentation of one group, I think it's justified to incentivize that group. And there's some evidence that once you get to a certain level of, of segregation, it gets harder and harder to get people to go into it. It's really hard to be the only female engineer out of 100. It's much easier if you're part of 30%. And as we hit 80% in terms of teachers, it's going to get harder and harder to persuade boys and men that teaching is a profession for them. So let's act now and let's subsidize it, let's incentivize men into teaching. Let's give subsidies to men broadly going into those healed professions. We face huge shortages in areas like nursing, social care, social work, etc. But we're trying to solve it with half the workforce. Again, let's get more men into those classrooms, let's get more men into those lecture halls and get more men into those professions. It would be good for the, good for the users of those services, I think, but it would be good for many of the men who otherwise might find, not find work. Equal and independent paid leave for fathers and mothers. I have changed my mind on this at least three times over the course of my policy career. When I was in government, in the coalition government, I argued that it should be fully transferable between mothers and fathers. I think the problem with that is that the mothers take almost all of it, and so it just entrenches still further that pay gap I talked about, and it sends the signal potentially to fathers that they actually don't matter as much as fathers independent of breadwinning. So I now think it should be independent, attached to the mother and the father separately, and not transferable. But as I say, I've changed my mind about three times already, so maybe by the end of the evening I'll change my mind again, and particularly in the US, more legal rights for unmarried fathers. The stakes of this conversation, I think, are relatively high now. This is not just a policy wonk conversation, although it is that. If we don't address this issue, somebody will. So this is a quote, which you can read. I think that men's issues are largely overlooked. I'm going to agree with that. To some extent, I think that's true. I've found that a lot. The people in charge of the world, Brookings, LSE, OECD, White House, etc., pretend to care, but when someone who's championing men's issues like myself comes forward and gets huge percentiles of public support, I'm silenced. They're not interested in men's issues, and there's a lot of young men growing up today feel very disaffected. They feel invisible. Again, I massively agree. Anyone know who said that? Anyone got a guess? Huh? Andrew Tate, yeah. <laughs> Who knows who Andrew Tate is? Hands up if you know who Andrew Tate is. For those of you who don't know, Andrew Tate is a remaining British influencer. He was the third most Googled person last year after Donald Trump and Queen Elizabeth. In a representative survey of US teens, he was described as the single most influential person in the world. Before he was deplatformed from TikTok, he had 12 billion views. And he's now under arrest in Romania for alleged rape and trafficking. His content is short form, algorithm driven, uh, performative masculinity. He combines some basic, solid, banal advice with pictures of himself shirtless and Maseratis, with some straightforward, downright misogyny, which is why he's been deplatformed, etc. And he has a massive global following. The question I think we have to answer is is he right in his analysis? Or at least partly right. And I have come to the view that he is. And that the way to avoid the demand for people like Andrew Tate. Now, if you want a slightly twinklier, more professorial version of it, Jordan Peterson, who's like the kind of George W. Bush to the Donald Trump, 
who is Andrew Tate, all the liberals are now really, really misty-eyed about George W. Bush. And they're getting a bit warmer about Jordan Peterson. He's not such a bad guy. Now the Tate's on the, on the scene. If we think that there's any truth to what he says at all, the answer is not to just dismiss him or dismiss everybody that looks at him as deplorable. But him, yes. But to cut off his supply lines. His supply lines are the sense among many people, boys and men, some women, that sense that many of them are like, I don't hear enough about this. Not instead of the stuff we're doing for women and girls, but just recognizing it, just putting the data out there, having some policies, being boring about it. I would love this issue to be really boring, because that would just mean that we're just following the data and addressing inequalities. Look at what's getting in the way of human flourishing. Over here, it's this group. Over there, it's that group. Let's have some policies. Please, for the love of God, can this become a boring conversation? Because then, Tate and the people like him won't sound the way they do right now, which is all too plausible. They don't sound as crazy as they should when they say this kind of thing, when institutions like ours don't actually just address these issues head on. It is an axiom of cultural and political life that if there are real problems in a society, if there are, and I believe there are for boys and men, and responsible people and institutions don't address them, irresponsible people will always exploit them. That's where we are right now. That's why I think the stakes are so high, and that's why I wrote this book. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Richard, and uh, thank you very much to the III for uh, an invitation to respond to um, Richard's presentation and to the book. I was very happy to receive this uh, invitation. Personally, well, I know Richard a little bit. I know some of his previous work, and we share uh, quite a few research interests. He's a great writer, he's very knowledgeable on both research and policy in the US and the UK. And he's very good at not just outlining the problem, which is a temptation we all have, uh, but actually thinking, oh, actually, we need to come up with some sort of viable solutions to how we tackle these problems. I was also pleased because on a subject matter that's concerned me uh, for some time, these uh, poor outcomes for boys and men have been evident, but not talked about very much. We know, uh, for example, suicide rates uh, are much higher for men. We also know crime rates are higher uh, and incarceration uh, rates. These are things that we've known uh, for quite some time. But there is a change uh, where we're seeing uh, a deterioration in outcomes for, for, for boys and men, uh, something new. It's also been a bit of a bugbear for me for, for many years that uh, gender studies tends to be used uh, to signify women's studies. And really, if it's gender studies, you should be looking at uh, men and women, boys and girls. If not, call it women's studies. I understand the history. I understand why gender studies have focused uh, on uh, women uh, in the past. And I should also say, full disclosure, I am the mother of two teenage boys. <laughs> I have a personal interest. <laughs> and of course, being asked, one of the nice things about asking is that it forces you to sit down and read the book. Of course, Richard, I would have read the book anyway. <laughs> maybe not cover to cover, maybe not in, in uh, such an intensive way. You do get a lot, lot from that, so thank you. And. Well, it didn't disappoint. For those of you who have read the book, it didn't disappoint. It identified some very stark inequalities affecting uh, boys and men. And it's really good to see uh, a, a strong spotlight being shone on these inequalities, on these poor outcomes. 
He's also highlighted some of the causes, some of the potential solutions, and the consequences of doing nothing. This is how we ended with thinking about what are the stakes, actually, of just sitting back and doing nothing. That gender inequalities need to be taken seriously, whether they affect men or women. We can do both. We need to do both. It's not a zero-sum game. We don't need to just concentrate uh, on things uh, that are affecting poor outcomes for girls uh, and boys. Uh, so for girls and women, we can also look at boys and men. And in fact, we all benefit uh, from reducing inequality. Now, I think um, also Richard points out in the book that we, we shouldn't really make this fatal mistake uh, of viewing the problems of uh, men as a problem with men. And I think that that's quite crucial here from when we think about the solutions. He then goes off and explores, well, why might this be the case? Well, it's, not, it's not their fault. What could be behind it? And identifies and puts forward suggestions around biological sex differences uh, and why we need to stop viewing these differences through a political lens, which is very unhelpful. Uh, as he puts it, men are attracted to things, women to people. And of course, this is a great simplification. I'm sure you're going to get a little bit of stick for that, Richard. Um, and I'm not an expert on these biological differences, uh, and I'm sure there's going to be a subject for discussion uh, when we open the floor for, for questions. So I'm going to leave it here, apart from sort of highlight this point that Richard was making about um, average, averages and overlapping distributions. This is a really important point that these distributions overlap and we shouldn't just look at averages. In a number of places in the book, Richard expresses dismay or exasperation um, that where boys and men are not doing as well as girls and women, or interventions have no impact on boys and men. This has been overlooked as if it doesn't matter. And it reminded me how, of how uh, outcomes for women used to be ignored, uh, particularly in economics, I think. Um, women had an insecure attachment to the labour market. So if you look back in economic journals, you, and particularly in labour economics, you will see paper after paper which only looked at outcomes for men uh, in the labour market. It's too complicated to look at women. Uh, their attachment was insecure. Let's look at men. It's simpler. Social mobility is another area um, which still focuses a lot of the time on outcomes for men, comparing fathers with sons with fathers. Um, and it doesn't always make it clear that that's the case. It talks about those findings as if they're general findings. They're not. They're about the relationship between sons and fathers. They're not about social mobility across the whole population. What it is for women um, matters. It reminded me of a, a presentation probably 10 years ago here at the International Conference, Economics Conference at the LSE, where I was a discussant on a, on a paper on social mobility. Um, and the presenter didn't mention that the results were only based on data for men in the whole of the presentation. Obviously, I'd read the paper in advance, I was a discussant. When I challenged this, uh, I was told, well, it's difficult to get a clear picture for women. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. Their labour market attachment is, is too complicated, really, to get a good understanding of what social mobility is like for women. It was like women were invisible. Um, worse, really, because of um, the results only applied to, to half the population. We didn't really know what was going on, either at the aggregate level or, or for women. 
Um, and, you know, we are the experts. It might be complicated. We're the experts. We can do this, you know. We can, we can cope with these uh, difficulties. That's what we do. And in the book, Richard really identifies uh, how boys and men have become invisible in many areas. Um, and we've been here before. So how can we find solutions? In fact, we don't even have a good grasp of the facts. And I think uh, the book goes in some ways helping us to establish some of those facts. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the, the outcomes we're more familiar with and then uh, have a discussion on some of the solutions before uh, ending on reasons why I think we can be optimistic. Um, these stark education inequalities aren't new. I think they widened earlier in the US and I think they are wider uh, in the US than they, they are in the UK. But we have similar inequalities. I was shocked when I discovered this quite a few years ago now and even more surprised it didn't really receive the attention. I mean, if the higher education participation rates across the whole population were what they are for men, it would be an outcry. I mean, they're, they're really um, nowhere near hitting policy targets. Richard does offer reasons for why he believes these uh, inequalities exist, biological, uh, developmental. Despair, what's the point, you know? Uh, if there's nothing to be gained by working hard at school, going to university, um, why not go and have some fun, take a few risks? Um, I'm going to think, well, what, what motivates girls and women beyond the kind of developmental uh, aspects? Well, they know they need to do better than boys and men. They need to be twice as good in order to keep, compete with them in the labour market. They need to get all of that under their belt before they have children because they know uh, that they're going to, their wages will fall, they'll be working less in part-time, low-paid jobs. There is still discrimination. And they also had something to prove, that they were equal to boys and men. And that's a real impetus there. They could get on and do it. Um, and there were, I think there were, and there are still in some cases, positive rather than negative peer pressure um, to do well. Now, in the UK, um, Rich sort of picked up on this bit, that the focus really has, uh, where there has been a focus on boys not doing as well uh, as girls, is uh, amongst white working class boys. Um, and so there has, there has been a bit of a focus on that. I don't think we've really come up with any great solutions for it, but it's, it's something that's talked about, and you see it in parliamentary papers. And in terms of employment, um, that's another by bugbears really. Um, there's lots of great heralding of record levels of employment, uh, highest employment rates ever. Uh, but that actually only applies to women. Uh, men had much higher employment rates in the 1970s uh, and the early 1980s. That it's not record levels of employment for, for men. And some of that might be a good thing if they're staying on in education um, and so on. But it, it, it's by no means, we, sh we shouldn't be saying all well, record levels of employment without recognising uh, that that's, that's really driven by uh, women uh, entering the labour force. And this occupational gen gender segregation, this sort of heel um, occupations, I think in, in a way when um, these tended to benefit men, this occupational gender segregation tended to benefit men, they tend to, to hoard some of the best opportunities in the labour market, the highest paying opportunities. And really through, well, as some of these are external factors we've come on to, it's actually benefited women that, they've, uh, that they work in these heel uh, occupations where there's been quite considerable growth. And you didn't show the growth figures for those, but you looked mm -hmm. at shares. But I think there's been growth in these, these occupations. 
Um, although I would encourage you, Richard, to look beyond full-time, because of these labour market statistics, when you compare men and women, if you only look at full-time, full-year, or full-time, you're really missing some of the important gender inequalities of that. Now, if we look at one of the main solutions that Richard puts forward, um, holding all boys back a year, this is in pre-kindergarten, they're aged about four or five. I, don't, I wouldn't rule it out completely, but I have some problems with it. Um, and in, in a way, I mean, putting it back to Richard, what, what he said, that um, he makes this very valid point about not looking at averages, that these distributions overlap. And then he comes up with a universal solution. Yeah. Let's treat them all the same. Yeah, all <laughs> so some girls won't be as developed as some boys. Some boys develop much earlier, some not. Um, and uh, so I would say, well, maybe you need a little bit of a rethink on, on that, uh, Richard, to be consistent with what you are saying before. Um, also, I wasn't quite clear if the benefits came later, why you were holding them back earlier. Mm -hmm. um, my understanding that pre-kindergarten is voluntary and you might end up not having the people you would, who would most benefit from having that extra year of being held back, uh, guessing it. I also worry that my own experience from my sons and their friends is that keeping boys in school up to the age of 19 before they go to university uh, could have quite a few negative effects. Climbing up school walls uh, being very challenging uh, and they're really ready to, to, to fledge not just the nest of home but the nest of school. They could also miss out on some age-appropriate learning, whether that's literature, science, maths or sex education, if you're holding them back a year. How are you going to deal with that? And I also think we have to recognise that children can be mean. If boys are being held back a year, uh, the girls won't forget that. <laughs> and you're labelling those boys. I think that's potentially quite damaging. They might want to look at add some other solutions. We should also look at Sweden, where, of course, schooling, formal schooling doesn't start until age six. Finland, it doesn't start until age seven. We put children into formal schooling very, very young, and that really might not be the thing that's not suiting uh, boys particularly well. Um, and so having a look at whether that, that starting later might be beneficial. I also worry slightly that you're not going to find out whether this policy is effective, even if you pilot it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that could be tricky. <laughs> and that gender gap, of course, didn't used to exist. What changed? Um, Richard said, well, they were, they were a bit oppressed in a sexist society. But it might not be development. There might be something else going on there. So worth looking at other options. I mean, one thing, of course, is teaching styles or assessment styles. In the UK, we've had this change from coursework, thinking that girls are more diligent getting it all, their coursework in, that harms boys who are these great risk takers. Um, and so we have much more exams. But believe me, the girls are going to cope with that all right. Um, then your proposal about more male teachers, I mean, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? <laughs> you know, don't even really need to discuss. I don't think it will be 50-50, as you put it, say it's ideal. Again, if you think of your things and people interests, it might not be 50-50, but it's a no-brainer. And then sort of higher and further education. Well, I, I do agree we need to have more focus on vocational. It's such a tough nut to crack. More apprenticeships, again, the policy there can be quite difficult. You know, they end up doing apprenticeships in, in subjects and occupations that you wouldn't perhaps choose. It's 
very hard to get funding. It's very hard to work out what the economic returns are to vocational skills because they're so heterogeneous. It's very easy to end up putting money into the wrong things. Uh, but I do agree uh, that the answer is not in increasing higher uh, education participation unless we can ensure that these are high quality. There are too many worthless degrees, particularly in the UK, I haven't seen statistics for the, the US, it's partly due to our funding system, our student loan system, where up to one in five can end up being worthless. Uh, they would have been better off not going to university. So you need to be absolutely sure uh, that these are uh, high quality degrees that go to. And then I'd like to just highlight what I think is a bit of an admission, not mentioned much in the book, I was a bit surprised. Crime, incarceration, recidivism, great to have Nikki here on the panel. I'm sure she's got something to say about this. You touch on it a bit in relation to black men, but I think it's a much broader issue for gender inequality. Violent crime in particular, but overall uh, crime. Uh, incarceration in particular. You don't cover it in your proposed solutions, um, but I think it could have a very big impact. So we know in the US you've got very high rates of incarceration. Why? Have you got an idea about that? Is it biological? Is it developmental? What's going on there? We do know there's this sort of two-way feedback relationship between crime, punitive sanctioning, incarceration, um, and levels of poverty and inequality, which we have both high levels of in both the UK and the US, and that's a problem. You've got to crack that cycle. Incarceration, of course, is very expensive. You're looking for some funding to fund the nice things you want to do. If you can reduce incarceration, you've got tens of billions of dollars every year available to, for you to do that. There are, of course, long-term negative impacts on employment, education, and your families. Reducing crime, incarceration, recidivism would free up a lot of resources to tackle these other inequalities. And any solution, I think, uh, must include some sort of radical shift in thinking to include rehabilitation, moving away from such a punitive sanction. You've got a captive audience in prison. You can educate, you can find work, you can work on reducing recidivism, you can help uh, ensure that those links with family, with children are maintained. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are. I'm just going to finish up then on reasons to be optimistic. Well, I'd say the first one is, look at the gains women made in a really short space of time. 1918, um, some women over the age of 30 were allowed to vote for the first time. 1928, all women aged uh, over the age of 21 gained the right to vote. That's not even 100 years ago. We've had gains in educational attainment. Uh, we used to lag behind boys, um, less staying on rates and fewer going to university. Now they've uh, leapfrogged ahead. Gains in the labour market with employment, narrowing of pay gaps was still some way to go. Uh, and gains in representation, particularly in the political sphere. So I think it's well worth celebrating what women have managed to achieve. How did they do this? What can be learned from what they did? If we know they put their heads down. They worked hard. They protested. They won the argument. And there have been external events that have helped them, aided by this occupational and industrial change. Women played a role, of course, in growing these jobs. The army of women prepared to work in low-paid uh, occupations. And this shift towards high-skill, growing demand for brains over brawn, I think, really helped uh, women. And there is still this long way to go. 
uh, in terms of thinking about women's safety and security. Uh, and there is a, a resentment there that you would like me to come up against when you put this forward. Uh, of course, men, whether it's a sexist society, held women back. Uh, and also, uh, men, some men threatened their safety and security. So, I think really, men at the moment are in a more favourable position than women were 100 years ago. And also, there are people like Richard, um, outlining these ideas, writing books, talking to policymakers, stressing the importance of the need for urgent solutions. So, I remain optimistic. I see there's a big problem, but I remain optimistic that things can be done to improve. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you both so much to have a terrific presentation, a terrific commentary. Now, we have some wonderful stewards who are going to be roaming around with microphones. And I'm going to ask those of you in the room, reminding us that we have colleagues online who are participating as well, could you put up your hands if you'd like to ask a question? And let's take the two women in the middle row in blue, but while the microphones are going there, I'm going to ask Peter if he would very kindly, I'm going to take the, the questions in pairs and maybe even threes. I'd like to ask you, remind you, would you say who you are and what your affiliation is? And uh, also try and keep your questions brief as possible, because I'm sure we're going to have many questions. So Peter, could you start us off with a couple of online questions? Yeah, so we've got a few questions. Um, first, I'll take us from Cassie Biggs. So even though women are more likely to get a master's or bachelor qualification, it hasn't shifted the power dynamics between men and women. Do you think that maybe women need to get higher education qualifications in order to be treated equal or close to equal to men? Um, so perhaps these statistics don't accurately reflect gender equality. Um, the second question I'll take is from Robin Hadley, who's an independent researcher in Manchester. And they said, is the lack of men in primary education perhaps caused by the dual view in Western society that men are a threat and women are naturally nurturing? So men not filling these traditional roles face stigmatization, uh, discrimination, etc. Um, should we do one, one more? one more. Yeah. Um, so the third one is from Teresa Almeida, who said, um, on occupation sorting, heel occupations are lower income, so wouldn't a policy that is not targeting men, but an overall policy that targets the conditions, benefits, and salary on these kind of occupations lead to more men going into them? Thanks so much. So, each of you? <laughs> Briefly, which is impossible, mm. but impossible. we want to get some. Yeah. Do you want me to go first? Um, thank you. Um, so Cassie said that there's been this change in the educational outcomes for men and women, but it hasn't changed the power dynamic between men and women. I guess I just disagree. I think the power relationship between men and women, especially in the labour market, is quite different today to what it was 50 years ago. And I don't think that means we're saying that there are no remaining issues, <laughs> but. I think it defies logic to suggest that things aren't better for my wife than they were for my mom. 
in the labor market um, in terms of power dynamic. But the, thing, the question underlying is, is do you, Abigail's question is, like, do women have to do more, right? Do they have to be better? Do they have to get better educated? Is there a kind of almost like an immigrant mindset among women, which is just like, I've got to, you know, I've got to work that much harder. And, what, and that, that might fade. Actually, that might be a temporary thing, and this kind of extraordinary aspiration that we're seeing among young women now um, is a temporary thing that's a result of sexism uh, as we go past it. But um, I actually think, I don't think you can look at the economic statistics that I showed and say there hasn't been a change in the parallelities between men and women. Gloria Steinem, Margaret Mead, all the rest of them said the whole point is to make women more economically independent so that they're not reliant on a man. And I think we've made huge strides in that direction, thank God. The second question from uh, Robert is about the threat of kind of men into those heel professions I mentioned earlier. My, Bryce, my son, who's here, is an early years educator. There's no question they face huge stigma. Um, and there is that sense of like, oh, why are you interested in young women, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is that the fewer and fewer men there are in those professions, the harder it is to actually attract men into them precisely because of that stigma, and the higher the risk that some of the men who are choosing those professions are doing so for reasons that we wouldn't want them to choose it. So we almost kind of create a vicious circle there because there's such a slow, low representation of men in those areas that I think it's just hard for a lot of men to just choose to go into them because of the stigma that's attached to it. So I think that's a classic vicious circle. And then Theresa's question about heel jobs being less well paid, that's true. Questions whether that's, what's the relationship between them being predominantly female and being less well paid? I think historically there's some truth to that. Men are a bit more salary sensitive than women. Should we pay those professions more? Yes. <laughs> anyway, would one byproduct that potentially be to make it easier to attract more men to those professions? Absolutely yes, but I'm very reluctant to say that's the reason to do it because I think those professions should be paid more anyway. I just, I just had one uh, quick thing, is that I think we should recognise the role of the welfare state, particularly in the UK yes. and Europe, um, yes. perhaps a little bit less so in, in America, but still it was transformative uh, in, yes. in terms of giving women uh, economic uh, independence. Yeah. And, uh, you know. To make it a choice, I mean, you know, Stein, marriage must become a choice, not a necessity for women. Mm. And, and mm. I think that was, that's mm. right. You're on, you have a microphone, I think. I have a bit of a two-pronged question. Number one, you talk about the modern state. What's your name, sorry? My name's Sonali. Mm -hmm. I'm in the Department of IR. So what do you describe as the modern state? Because I'm just lost a bit over there. I come from a small, tiny island of the south of Africa. And uh, we're considered to be modern and, uh, you know, not a developing country. We still have a large proportion of teachers that are male, yet we still have a big proportion of suicides that are male. Further to that, we are steep, still deeply ingrained in patriarchy. So that, like, is kind of like a mirror to all that you're saying, is that uh, more women are teaching English, men don't teach English throughout my education system and those of my peers and those younger than me and older than me, all my teachers have been male. Do you know, there's still high suicide rates. There is still a deep embedded patriarchy. So I'm kind of struggling to understand where the modern comes in, how much we can blame equality for this, because even in places that are not equal, my country is not equal. By far is it equal we still have these problems. Is it modernization that is the problem and the rise of, I want to say, extreme feminism to an extent? Or is it just, sometimes I'm struggling 
to see what you're saying in your book and even when you talk about like violence and stuff there is you say that there's a huge problem in violence and men you know are prone to violence and all these things but you don't mention controlling it and you know the ways and i don't know that's just kind of whatever irked me Hi, so I am Ugne, a student of MSc Inequalities and Social Science, um, and I have half a comment, half a question. <laughs> uh, so all the statistics, uh, all well and good, but I wonder what's the sort of conceptual framework of yours to explain what's happening, it's maybe uh, somehow echoes the question of the previous student who asked it. Um, because let's take these professions, which I really agree is a bit big problem, but we don't have enough men almost no men in the professions such as early years teaching. But to me, as a feminist, I would say I see it as caring after people has been, you know, associated with femininity since at least industrialization. And it continues to be devalued and arguably it's even more devalued today uh, than before women entered the workforce. And maybe that's one of the reasons why men do not want to go into these professions and why women who are in these professions are not paid enough. And you know, if you look at the gender pay gap within these sectors, it's actually one of the biggest in many countries because the men that we do have in the sectors such as, you know, medicine, uh, we have men only at the, you know, positions of the upper stratum of the hierarchy, like doctors and all the nurses would be women, and the same with like post-secondary education versus early years education. We have quite a good balance of professors here at the LSE, but not in the early years, you know, facility. Um, so I'm saying all of this just to go to the solution and back to the conceptual framework that explains all this and puts the mechanism that could set us all you know, more equal, more equally, because the solution that you propose, like subsidies for, for men who want to go into the profession, such as medicine or nursing uh, or early years education, it's quite problematic for me to see how women currently in the field not being paid enough would see that. And I don't know, I uh, just, I won't go into that further, but just how you explain it more theoretically. Very clear, thank you. So um, I'm going to give uh, Richard and Abigail a chance to comment, to respond, and I'd also will take some more online questions, but could those of you in the audience who'd still like to ask a question put your hands up? Thank you. The trick, by the way, if you want to make a statement um, but make it sound like a question, just to have your, the tone of your voice rise at the end of the sentence. It's a trick that I've learned many times. Um, so I think the first question is like, I, I do think that kind of recognizing the difference between different countries as well as different times is absolutely critical to this debate. I don't think I made that clear enough. Like I gave you data from OECD, I gave you data from advanced economies. Uh, I think that in most of the world, it's still true that the cause of gender equality is synonymous with the cause of women and girls. And that that has been true in advanced economies until very recently. <laughs> so this is very new and very geographically specific. Um, and that's just, but, but I, the data I think kind of leads us to, to that conclusion, which is why I think places like Norway are uh, having a commission on boys and men now, they're kind of recognizing that they've got massive gender equalities going the other way. And I think it just requires us not to have a kind of single view about the relationship between men and women 
that applies across the whole world. Because it just seems to me it seems to me unhelpful to imagine that the same situation is, applies in Iraq as in Iceland uh, when it comes to gender equality. I think we have to be able to allow that there are kind of huge differences um, in between those two countries. And the second one about heel and nurses and so on. Well, I'd make two points. One is I've been astonished how quickly some of these professions have become gendered. Uh, and I showed some of the data on that. Is that like these weren't women's professions until yesterday? They are now. Um, and I think the large reason, by the way, that they're not very well paid, especially given that these changes have happened so recently, is because they're typically public sector jobs. And public, the public sector's been under a lot of pressure and just doesn't pay its workers very well. Um, now, you could argue that behind that, there's a kind of sexist presumption that because it's mostly women doing it, we're going to pay it less. So I think that's a hard question to answer empirically. And as to whether or not we should actually have subsidies for men into those, to be clear, what I'm after are things like, like you said, more male teachers, no-brainer. Well, how would we feel then about having specific scholarships that are for men to get them into teaching? They're not going to be paid more once they're teachers, um, but actually just to try and incentivize them to get into that profession, just as we do for women into engineering and STEM and math, um, even though we've seen big gains there. So I see them as entirely complementary approaches um, and not one, that, not one that I think most women in those professions would necessarily oppose. But if they did, then they'd have to have a, I think we'd have to have an argument about whether or not we want more men in those professions at all. I think we do for social welfare reasons. Yeah, I'm not going to add much to that. I agree with uh, what Richard's saying. But I think you raise a really interesting point, though, that um, we, we, we do know that situations are very different in different countries, lower-income countries, middle-income countries, and, and higher-income countries. But actually, is there a thread of something that's also running through? We do know that suicide rates are high amongst men, have been in all of our countries. Yeah. Uh, and you know, crime as well. As and some of it is to do with, and without getting into it, how they choose to, the method they use, which is high risk um, and uh, more likely to be fatal and less likely to be saved. Um, but there might be something there. Uh, is there something? Is there something about modernisation that, that's running a thread through, even in these other countries where it's still the case that uh, there is women who are being discriminated against? So it's an interesting question, I think. And I wonder how much there's spillover too. So you see, like, there's a very strong backlash in places like South Korea and so on that actually hugely influenced the presidential election there, even though there are still pretty stark gender inequalities disfavouring women and girls. And so you wonder whether or not some of this isn't a sort of sense of, like, that's what's coming. Mm. And it can be really, as I suggested in my talk be really kind of weaponized by reactionary politicians even if they haven't actually haven't got even if we haven't gotten anywhere we're not Norway yet for sure in South Korea but it, it, I think politicians are see, seeing an opportunity there Josh Hawley the US senator from Missouri who's very very right-wing has his own book coming out very shortly and his book is called manhood um, which is a much more grabby title than mine uh, rediscovering the traditional male virtues and he's basically going to argue the left hate men, the feminists have come for us, they've destroyed society, they're obsessed with trans rights, whatever. He's just going to create this horrible caricature. Josh Hawley is many things, but stupid isn't one of them. He knows he's going to find an audience for that message, which is men are struggling, because that's true. And then he's going to say, it's because the left hate you, and that sounds plausible enough. So vote for me. So I'm really worried about that. Isha, do we have some more online questions? Could you give us a couple, and then we'll come back to the audience. Thank you. So I'll take uh, this question from Eric Mungai, who's from the organization Yazua Africa in Kenya. 
um, who's asked, what are some social development policy interventions which can be put in place in our communities and society to curb the disenfranchisement felt by adult men, especially in the African context they're working in, where violence and intimidation is often used by men to signal and assert their power? Um, the second question is, um, thanks for emphasizing the need for an intersectional analysis, which was very convincing. Can you comment on what intersectional policy recommendations look like? Peter, could you just pass the microphone to the gentleman who's diagonally behind you? Uh, I don't need a microphone, thank you. Mm -hmm. I can speak up. Uh, two, two short questions. Uh, the trend in the last 50 years has been towards mixed education. Mm -hmm. Is there an argument for going towards more single-sex schools? And my second point is this, uh, Richard, I think you mentioned uh, reading. Yes. Is, is literacy declining overall, particularly amongst boys? TikTok has taken its place. And is that, and this isn't particularly a gender issue, men and boys issue, isn't that a real threat and consequence for liberal democracy? Well. <laughs> I, I worked here at the MSC in the early 1970s. <laughs> Most people here were born. And is a childhood friend of my father and went to a single-sex school with my father. So. <laughs> so I think we have to be honest here, Roy, right? Well, some quite simple questions. Oh, yeah, easy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, go on. No? You don't want to go I think first? it's definitely a question for you. Okay, well, um, uh, so I, have a I didn't get all the names from Kenya. So I think it actually picks up a little bit this point about my theory of, of change and how we move forward. And I think this applies in all contexts, which is one of the consequences of the change in the economic relation between men and women in advanced economies, and that will not be true in many of the co other countries, but has to, I think, raise this question of what the male role is. What does pro-social male role look like? Um, in this changed world. And one of the things I emphasize very strongly in the book is fatherhood. And fatherhood is an incredibly important social institution in its own right, independent of breadwinning, maybe independent of the relationship with the mum. Like I used to think the relationship between mums and dads was like a direct relationship between mum and dad, direct relationship between mum and the kids, and then like a dotted line between dad and the kids, right? That was the kind of old style because he was typically kind of breadwinning. But now that we have kind of much more equality and breadwinning, I think that we really have to do more around fatherhood. And so if nothing else in your life is going well, your kids need you if you're a dad. And I don't think that policy sends that message clearly enough. And that means too many men feel benched. So in the US, and I can only speak to the US here, within six years of their parents separating, a third of American kids never see their father again. Now that's for all kinds of reasons that we could get into, but nonetheless, I don't see why that shouldn't send alarm bells ringing for most of us. Right, because, because uh, so I, I'll just say fatherhood. Um, and then um, in the answer to Roy's questions, I looked hard at the evidence on single sex schools, at least in the US context. I do not see very strong evidence for differences in outcomes for boys from going to boys' schools, but it's almost impossible to research because the selection bias, of course, is huge. By definition, people choosing to send their kids to those schools are not randomly drawn from the population. The data is quite old, and I think it's quite possible now that actually new studies might find some positive effect. But one of the things I noticed from talking to parents who are choosing those schools is very often they're doing it because they want their kids to have male teachers. And you'll find more male teachers in those schools. In the US, there are fewer male teachers in public schools, what we would call, what you'd call state schools here, and more male teachers in private schools. 
including all boys schools. So I wonder if they're not trying to get these male spaces and male teachers in another way. And then as for literacy, I don't know the trends in literacy generally. I know the gaps are growing. I know there are issues around attention span, et cetera, but I don't know enough and maybe Abigail will know more, more about that. Um, obviously literacy is important, but what I can tell you for sure is that there is a gigantic gender gap. In the typical school district in the US, girls are a greater level ahead in English than boys. I'm hoping we can fit in two more questions. Uh, and this gentleman here, Scott, is my friend. Could we have somebody on this side? Yes, the gentleman at the back. <coughs> Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Peter Baker. I'm from an international charity called Global Action on Men's Health. And um, first of all, Richard, can I thank you for all the work that you're doing to put men on, or to try and put men on the public policy agenda. I think this is really important work. But what I'd like to do as well is to encourage you perhaps to say a bit more about men's health in the work that you do. And we've, we know that the uh, inequalities in men's health have been around for a very long time. We have parish record data in London going back to the 17th century, which shows that men had shorter lives than women, and not much has changed uh, over that in the several hundred years since. And it's not just about suicide. I mean, you're quite right the suicide statistics, but in the recent COVID pandemic, in many countries, twice as many men as women died. Yes. Cancer worldwide, twice as many men die from cancer uh, as women. We see the same pattern in heart disease, diabetes. Whichever, whichever disease you want to look at, pretty much, there's a big, big difference between men and women's health outcomes. And you mentioned at the start about the importance of developing strategies on men's health. We certainly need one in the UK. Our nearest partner, Ireland, has had a men's health strategy for 15 years. And although the government hasn't put much money into supporting the strategy, we can see that it has had a really marked impact on men's health. It has made a real difference in Ireland. And I think, um, you know, we, if we did the same here and if the states did something similar, I think that would make a huge difference. So I would like to encourage you to say more about men's health, but also have a question for you as well, which, which is about health. Very quickly. Very quickly. It's about health, but also everything else you've been talked about. In, in leadership positions, people in charge of society are pretty much men. You know, men have all the power, pretty much most of the power in society, and yet men are neglected. Yeah. That's a real paradox. And I wonder, I've been puzzling about this for a long time, and I wonder how you explain that. It's a great question. And, and final question at the back. Uh, hi, Dad. Um, <laughs> told you not to give him the mic. Uh, so you talked a little bit about Andrew Tate and his toxic effects, um, yes. and you talk about combating Andrew Tate with sensible uh, kind of research, Brookings Institute, and all of this kind of stuff. Institution, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I, I was hoping if you could elaborate on ways to combat this kind of toxic narrative of Andrew Tate, because. Maybe the Brookings Institute does re release something about boys and men, but the average 14 or 15-year-old boy yeah. is not going to be reading a Brookings Institute. He's going to be watching yeah. a TikTok of Andrew Tate driving a Bugatti, or I don't know yeah. what he does. Or, and they're not going to be watching a video, a video of you talking about overlapping curves and stuff like that. So combating Andrew Tate and other such people in younger people and their influence. Uh. I think we can see you've done very well on fatherhood. <laughs> really? <laughs> Would you like to hear? Um, no, I mean, apart from this point, I mean, we, we know that, that suicide rates in particular, but also life expectancy mm. overall being lower for men. We used to think it was because of the occupations they worked in. And it is true that as more women are working and working in those types of occupation, we see some of the, the health 
uh, problems like um, heart problems uh, amongst uh, men, uh, women as mm. well in their 50s and so on. Um, so, yeah, and, and also, and Richard highlights this in the book, this sort of shocking thing that, yeah, more men died, more likely to die from COVID. But there doesn't, there's no inquiry, is there? Why? No I mean, it's, it's shocking, really. Yeah. Uh, we need to know why. It's one of those data points that I stumbled over. And uh, so thank you for the question, Peter, and thank you for your work. And it was coming COVID in some way. I talk about this in the book. But COVID was a very interesting example, I think, of the, our difficulty talking about this because there were clearly impacts for women and girls from COVID. And there was a lot of attention being paid to that, largely large in my view, quite rightly. But I ended up doing work at Brookings on the gender gap in death rates. And I'm, that's not my field. And the reason I did it was because no one else was doing it. And eventually some more people started, but it was, it was slightly unbelievable to me. And you're right, certainly in the UK and the US, for among middle-aged men, the death rate was twice as, twice as high as it was for women. Globally, it was 50% higher. The initial reaction was, well, it's because they've got more pre-existing conditions, they smoke too much, they won't wear masks, they won't get vaccinated. None of those turned out to be true. There's just there are some biological differences that make more men more vulnerable to that virus. And that had no, it was really just very difficult to get people talking about that. Back to this point about invisibility, the, the best data on this globally was from Global Health 5050, which was a women's health organization established because women were very often invisible in these health discussions. So the reason that Abigail identified, but it was very interesting to me that they weren't thrilled that I was using their data. <laughs> you know, you'd think, wow, Brookings Institution report using our data. Wow. Mm -mm, silence. So it was interesting to me that we just couldn't, again, we couldn't think two thoughts at once. We couldn't just responsibly say, here's a group that appear to be at higher risk. On the life expectancy point, I think that's true. There's a bigger class gap growing in the US as well. Again, you've got to do this intersectionally. Actually, life expectancy is not doing well at the bottom of US society, but it's actually doing quite well at the top. And as for a men's health strategy, I think it's a no-brainer. Maybe we'd think we have a women's health strategy. It's, why wouldn't you have a men's health strategy? But the UK Parliament can't do it because they're afraid politically. They, think, they just think something will happen, something bad will happen. And, and I honestly think that the more of us that are saying it's a no-brainer, the better, um, because I think it's incredibly important that we don't, because then people will come, come to Bryce's question. I think it's much easier for the Andrew Tates of this world or whatever to claim the UK government doesn't care about boys and men when we won't talk about the COVID gap and we won't have a men's health strategy, even though we have a women's health strategy. They don't sound crazy enough. So let's just do some boring stuff to make them sound less crazy. Um, and then Bryce's point about Tate and your kind comments about how many people are going to watch my videos. <laughs> um, <laughs> overlapping distributions. For something like that, I actually think there's two, two thoughts. One is I don't necessarily think we can combat those online personalities online. I think to some extent that has to be done in, thick, in the thick of daily life. So I do think that's why having kind of more, more, t more male teachers like you in earlier settings, having you know, more coaches, scout groups, you know, whatever you want to call it, having like I, kids, kids just want to see it, I think. And so I see that as a reason for doing, getting more men into those spaces so that you know, they're not just seeing Andrew Tate online, I'm picking on you, but they see you in the classroom, right? Mm. Uh, and I just think they, they believe their eyes much more than their ears. So that's the first thing. And then secondly, to the extent we do do it online, I think we have to disaggregate what's the demand about, right? If, if really all Tate's doing is giving some empathy, and Peterson does that for sure, mm. well, why can't we do that? Why can't we make boys and men feel like we see you, we get it, but it's, it's, it's hard. There's some hard stuff going on for you. Right, that's literally just saying that. Turns out, saying that's very powerful. Advice, we should be getting very good at giving some advice. The misogyny, directly tackle it head on. 
and just say completely unacceptable. And then the transgressive stuff and the humor stuff, meet boys and men to some extent where they are um, and engage in that uh, and not be afraid of it because our fear of engaging with these issues, and I'm repeating myself here, but I, but I really think our, our collective institutional fear of engaging with these issues for fear that we'll be seen as traitors to the cause of gender equality has created this gap in the market. And I think we're reaping the consequences. Back to your point, Roy, we're reaping the consequences in our politics right now, uh, and I think we should act now to try and cut off their fuel lines. I think that rallying cry for open debate is a very, very nice place to end as we thank sit you for in the university. This summer. Yes, uh, thank you. I, I want to thank, just before we express our appreciation again, which I'm sure we all feel very deeply, I want to thank, of course, Richard and Abigail, fantastic presentation, fantastic book. Uh, didn't even have to use my pink card. Uh, brilliant timing. I'd also like to thank Peter for handling the online questions and doing a lot of back of the house organization to our wonderful student stewards, to all of you for being here, both here and online, and also to our BSL colleagues who have done a fantastic and very, I'm sure, very uh, demanding job of uh, doing uh, the sign language uh, broadcast. So thank you all so much and please can we thank Richard. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.